Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. See you next to Jeff Gann. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, make sure you hit those subscribe buttons. In today's podcast, we are going to be doing a Q&A. This is something that we do do once a week. Uh, so to be able to ask questions and be on the lookout for that, uh, the best place to um, ask the questions is at Focus Compound, which is my Twitter. Uh, we're going to spend about 25 minutes, get through as many questions as we okay. possibly can. <laughs> um, there's starting to get more and more questions, which is great. We love it. Um, but we will do this once a week. So if you want to ask a question, really the best place is Twitter at Focus Compound. The first question is read industry reports on Visa and understand competition, margins, where they can grow, grow for other industry, etc. But I don't know how much they can or are likely to grow at. I'd still need to look at Yahoo's growth estimate. How should I handle this problem? Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know the answer to that either. I can say the same things. I have no idea how, how much they'll grow, and that becomes a factor because of how they're priced. If they were a lot cheaper, it wouldn't be a factor. But yeah, that's the problem for me too. All right. The same gentleman asked, I looked at all the stocks written up and uh, possibly suggested on the managed account slides, BCIS, BWXT, NACO, KEWL, Twinkie, uh, which is Hostess Brands, uh, CSVI, PCOA, ETM, TLF, they all have lost money as of the write-ups from 2017 to 2018. What happened? It's been a bull market. Is this just bad luck? Uh, I mean, some of them are, they were put up on the website, but they're previous to that. So the write-ups aren't from 2017 or 2018. But um, we, and, uh, and some of them aren't my write-ups. Uh, yeah. But we never you know, bought TWNK. No, but we end up buying three of those stocks and continue to own one of them. Mm -hmm. um, the other ones are things that we didn't uh, buy. Uh, I mean, some of them, BCIS is from 10 years ago or, or so. Yeah, 10 years ago. BWXT is from um, over five years ago. Uh, uh, so let's see. Um, Tandy, is a TLF the last one? Yeah. Yeah, so Tandy did poorly as a business and stuff. Um, that's a singular diligence write up, but so that's the answer. The business did badly. Uh, PCOA, I don't know what's happened with it and stuff. It, it did a reverse split. Um, CSVI did well and then was uh, sold. Maybe I shouldn't have sold it, but CSVI did well. And then the others, um, Cool did badly and uh, the valuation in terms of Timberland and stuff came down. Um, NACO is pretty similar if you read the write-ups and to where the stock price is now, it's kind of current and stuff. But that's only for um, focus compounding members. So I don't know if we want to spend much time on those stocks because other people can't read them. Mm -hmm. um, and then he asked another question. If I wanted to answer this question, how does management deploy capital? Would I do that by finding the ratios of CapEx to operating cash flow, dividends to free cash flow, repurchases to free cash flow, and acquisitions to free cash flow? How do you suggest finding the answers if that's wrong? How do you determine if their efficiency at it too? So okay. I think he means just how do they yeah, deploy so, capital? Yeah, um, so Buffett talked about the institutional imperative. I think the biggest thing is, are they doing things that others didn't do? And are they doing things that made sense at the time they did it? So you have to kind of analyze it that way. I, I've said that before. So uh, we own two stocks in which I think they ended up, uh, the returns in terms of their acquisition were not good. Um, however, I 
think management made perfectly good decisions in making them. I, I mean, I'm given the facts at the time that they made in the terms on which they made it, I might have done the same thing. Whereas opposed to that is things that I think are really dumb acquisitions or something that you would judge at the time that way. So I think you can't look at the resulting sort of thing of it, of like what actually happened, but did it make sense at the time? Um, and, and then just compare them to others in their industry. Do they use a lot of debt? Do they not? Um, I would not use I would focus on acquisitions. I would focus on repurchases as an example. So repurchases and dividends are a good example. Repurchases, do they do big repurchases in certain times and then stop and then big ones again? Or do they just use repurchases like a lot of companies do um, just when they have the extra cash and stuff? Um, so companies that don't buy back for years and then buy back a lot or something are more interesting. Just things that are unusual, that are different than other companies do. Anything that's the same sort of thing that most companies in the industry do, you can kind of ignore. It's the, do they borrow a lot more than others? Do they buy back a lot more than others? Things like that, especially like buying back in gulps and stuff like that or doing unusual acquisitions. Yeah. Uh, next question. He asked for a snap judgment on UG. Okay. And then he also said, what is that paper that shows illiquid stocks outperform? So that paper is like, okay. it's like virtually vanished from the internet. That's it's illiquidity as an investment style. I think 2004. 14 or 15 is still out there, but the most recent Ibbotson, one, right, Roger? Yeah, the most recent one, it's literally gone. And I know how they say, oh, your digital footprint. No, no that paper is gone. And I've asked like Ian Castle and other yeah. investors as well that source, I guess, specialize in this space. And they've said the same thing. So mm-hmm. I don't, yeah, but you could look for like maybe 2014 or 15. Uh, it's out there on the internet, but it's illiquidity as an investment style. And then we could pull up UG. We are pulling this up through QuickFS. And if okay. you do want to sign up for QuickFS, uh, at quickfs.net. Make sure you told them that you came from Focus Compounding. Jeff and I use this every single day. Capole, historical financial information, models, et cetera, everything we're going to look at right now. Um, so make sure you tell them you came from um, Focus yeah. Compounding. So uh, this is Microcap, United Guardian. Yep. Um, UG, it, it trades on the NASDAQ, actually. Uh, it's a very small stock. I am somewhat familiar with it, so this isn't going to exactly be a snap judgment. Uh, I can see why you'd be very interested in it or why someone would ask about it. Amazing gross margins. We're talking about like 60% or something, but even on top of that, very high EBIT margins, very high free cash flow margins. The obvious problem that you're going to see here is the revenue growth. So the great thing is that assets haven't grown at all, right? Mm-hmm. So th- that's great. But fundamentally, unless you get some revenue growth going on, all you're going to get as a return here is the free cash flow that you get. Um, so fundamentally, that makes it a problem. I know it's hard to believe, but unless you believe revenue will grow and free cash flow will grow, then honestly, it's hard to pay more than about 10 times free cash flow for this. And I know it's a great business, but if growth is literally zero, we're not even talking 3% or something, right? Um then it, you really can't pay more than the free cash flow yield without growth. It's free cash flow yield plus growth is your um, return. And I understand the business is amazing, but the amazingness of the business is only a factor that comes in as you multiply that through an effect, if you think of it that way, sort of multiplicative, as you do that with um, how much is reinvested in the business. So having 100%, let's say, uh, return on invested capital or something, their actual return on invested capital is 37%, um, is great. But the truth is that a business, if... Both companies are growing capital at nothing each year, which mm-hmm. is what's happening here. Having a 0% return on capital and a 40% return on capital does not make a difference. And I know that's very hard to believe, but unless you put more capital into the business, return on capital does not matter. So so then 10% or 10 times free cash flow. of 10, basically, yeah. Got it. So it's about uh, two-thirds of what it's trading at now, basically. This is a good question. With the Fed clearly wishing to manipulate asset prices but focusing more on larger firms, do you see advantages in your smaller company strategy in terms of actually being able to invest on fundamentals? Yes. Why is uh, that? 
because they have not um, recovered to the same extent as other companies um, since the uh, market bottomed, basically. And and not only that, but we talked a little bit about this. They have not recovered even if they do the same sort of thing or are also unrelated to COVID and things like that. So uh, as an example, we had um, one or two stocks, which their earnings went up a bit, and they've basically said our earnings are expected to go up even a little bit more. In one case, I think they've this kind of like benefited them in a sense a little bit. Um, and yet they haven't recovered the way that like, uh, you know, the kinds of stocks that people would focus on like the Fang stocks or the mm-hmm. whatever things. So we have a few stocks, not all of them, but a few that in no way are harmed by COVID and stuff. And they dropped when it happened. Yeah. And then they have not recovered at the same pace as some other ones. And so in some cases we may all be, uh, buy a little bit of them. Mm-hmm. So mostly it's an issue of the volume though. Uh, but you know, and I so think it he's has al- to last a little while yeah. and maybe I'm putting words in his mouth or craft my own narrative, but maybe he's also asking this question because markets continue to go up from the liquidity that the fed is providing so far. Right. right. It's only we, we a couple months tend, or whatever. Look, we, we tend to be in stocks that have low liquidity. So our stocks are the least sensitive to credit conditions on both sides. Um, when the market drops dramatically on certain days, honestly, the stocks we're in don't drop as dramatically. Uh, they're not the first thing you would sell because they're harder to sell. Um, I mean, the the thing the stocks that drop really dramatically are like the things that hedge funds own and stuff and, and big numbers and and likewise they don't recover that way. And you saw that people who lived through this saw which stocks are the super liquid ones that would be on the leaderboard for up ten or fifteen percent a day and then the next day be down ten or fifteen percent. Ours would never be on either of those. Mm-hmm. What new information? Oh, I'm sorry. I actually like this one. Okay. So, um, <laughs> what are your guys' general thoughts on this growth being the main driver on total future shareholder returns? It looks like top line growth uh, being the longer, the long run driver of stock performance. He posted a chart. Um, I. Ag- That's what it's been. I agree with that. As uh, how do I put this? Um, yes, uh, I think that. We value investors need to pay a lot of attention to sales growth over time. Um, but you have to be a little careful. Um, but it's the same as free cash or whatever. I, yes, statistically over time, I think that's the most important. I think if you pay a reasonable price to sales and you get good sales growth over time, that's a great way to invest. I would caution people though, like same as with free cash or anything else, like I think free cash is a great way to invest, but I, you can make the mistake of like selecting the wrong ones of buying the thing with free cash flow and no sales growth. Mm-hmm. You don't want to buy the thing with sales growth and no profitability. But in general, I totally agree with that. I think most investors need to pay more attention to sales growth over time. What's a good price to pay? It depends on the industry Time sales. Itself. Yeah, that's the problem. It well, depends. we've talked about before how Buffett. It's not like he's been. He hasn't really bought you know fifteen to twenty percent top line growers. No. Mm-mm. Um, do you have any more thoughts on that before we go to the next question? No, when people ask a lot of times about a business I like a lot, why haven't I bought it? It's because I don't expect the top line growth to be fast enough. So why haven't I bought Omnicom? I think the top line growth will be hard to come by there. Um, why don't we own Village Supermarket or something? I think top line growth will be hard to come by. You can look at those companies and decide whether you agree or disagree with me. But we sometimes own things where I think it's more realistic that they'll be able to grow their sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question. What new information do you want to see companies begin to disclose in their financial statements that isn't mandated already oh um that's a really good question uh in their financial statements um 
I guess. Oh, uh, I would like to. I would like to see them break out uh, advertising expense. Yeah, got it. So actually, I would love if R and D and advertising. A lot of companies break out R and D, but it was split out as a separate line on the on financial statements, as opposed to being included in like SGNA and stuff like that. And plenty of companies disclose it. I mean, some companies disclose it somewhere. But yeah, mm-hmm. if that was like an actual line that was traditionally used, I would love that. Which of the Fang stocks has the most compelling case for future price appreciation? I mean, if we mean like in the very, very long term, Amazon. Nice. But in the short term, it depends on how high priced they are versus other things. I I don't know. It's not the cheapest of the FANG stocks. Mm -hmm. Um, This person wants to know, if you were forced to give a hard rule, how much debt is too much on a debt to EBITDA or normalized operating cash flow basis for a best case, stable and predictable company? I mean, in terms of like, I would start to worry yeah. Three times debt to EBITDA. In terms of could someone do an LBO and be convinced it's still okay and stuff, you can do six or seven. It can be done. <laughs> Best case, yeah, if it all works out, you can do seven times EBITDA. But um, yeah, no, I, th- I think to still be able to get bankers to be happy to keep lending you money and stuff, you don't want to be over three times debt to EBITDA to start with. Um, let me close that. Okay, um, let's see. Next question. If Given, I know given price, you guys are unlikely to buy, but have you spent any time on Zoom Info or Royalty Pharma recent IPOs? RPRX in particular looks like a very interesting business model. I don't know anything about it. So, I mean, um, I just haven't looked at it all. Yeah. Um, why does Berkshire have casualty insurers? What are the advantages of this? Oh, I, I, I actually don't know. Um, exactly what that question means. And then he also asks, in the 1995 letter, Buffett wrote, since our float has cost us virtually nothing over the years, it has in fact served as equity. What does this mean? Oh, yeah. So I guess I know what the first question means too. The answer to the second question is the answer to the first question then. Um, so <laughs> the, uh, yeah. yeah, so what he means is that it's costless. Mm-hmm. So to the company, it's costless. Uh, it's actually better than equity. But what he means that they don't pay any interest on and stuff. So it's a permanent source of capital. So one thing that's confusing is if your float doesn't decline, it's a permanent source of capital. I know this is very, very confusing to people. That doesn't make any sense. How can it be that something that rolls off every year or something like policies could end in six months and stuff for um, Geico and everything mean that it's a permanent source of capital? But as long as the total amount of policies that you have out in, in dollar amounts and stuff is basically the same, then you're going to have the same amount of float. I mean, it just um, so. So the float would be the amount that you can use to buy things and stuff. So a company, and this is float is not just for insurers and stuff. We talk about OTC markets or something Mm -hmm. or whatever. If people are prepaying for a subscription and the same number of people are prepaying each year and your price is the same, you're going to always have on hand the same amount of money. This also could be true for Points International or something, which is stock we talked about where they um, end up having a little bit of float from uh, a difference between when they buy airline miles and when they sell them. Or I should say when they sell them and then when they buy them in a sense. Um, so it means that you have a permanent source of capital that doesn't that you don't have to pay any interest on. So it's like equity in that sense. It's it's certainly as safe as equity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Berkshire does sometimes let the float decline and stuff, which is a little different. And that is an issue. You can't always keep the float the same level unless you're willing to accept pricing because sometimes your competitors will come in and take business from you. And Berkshire has allowed its float decline. So if you look at like their reinsurance business or the, especially their catastrophe, like their super cat business, they actually let that drop off a huge amount, which presumably means that other people took the business from them. So they let their market share fall a lot. Yeah, and a good place, I think, we hit this topic 
pretty extensively in a podcast we did. I think it's titled Other People's Money. And I know Float was in there and we went over it. So that's a good place to, um, uh, to you know, start, I guess, if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, next question, question for Andrew. How much has Jeff influenced your investing strategy in general? How much one is influenced by his mentor? And are you open-minded for other strategies? Trying to figure out if we are just influenced by the books slash blogs we read slash follow, et cetera, until it becomes like a religion. Um, I would say Jeff's strategy makes a lot of sense to me. I think Jeff's strategy is different than a lot of other people because, and I talk about this very often, he truly thinks about investing in stocks just like a real business. So many people are so focused on the price they pay and even like price movements in the stocks when really you know, you focus, I think, much more on just the actual business and the fundamentals. And even people that say I'm a value-oriented bottom-up investor or whatever, they still are pretty concerned about the prices, the general movements and stuff like that. Jeff truly thinks about it, you know, from the business fundamentals. I mean, there was a company that we owned that reported earnings and, um, you know, you were talking about like the operating leverage that the business has and what you took away from this report. And I don't want to get too extensive into it because we haven't really talked about the position or whatever, but I would just say that his strategy has made sense to me because it's thinking truly like a business owner. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I think that whatever influence I've had on you has been more through or, um, trips that we've done, scuttlebutt that you've done yeah. things like that more so, uh, than I think people a lot of times think in terms of like, um, influence and philosophy and whatever in terms of like, are you a Phil Fisher type investor, or Ben Graham? Are you quantitative or whatever? I think a lot of it is more the stuff we do off air. And, yeah. And yeah. That's why I enjoy Scalbus so much. Cause again, I hate to beat a dead horse, but it takes the stock out of the business. Mm-hmm. And that for me has been the biggest in, or just the biggest like factor, I guess, in learning and, you know, thinking about it like a business owner, where if you have whatever vehicle that is, whether it's a fund or managed accounts or your own personal money, you truly think about each position in the portfolio like you're investing in the business itself. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do when the markets continue to go up every yeah. single day. And, you know, you have, especially right. being very public, like we are as well or, sure. you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say, of course, he's influenced me. I mean, we work so closely for the past four years. Um, I think we're also attracted to different businesses. I would yes, say, I, um, I like things that is very simple to understand. If you explain it to a five-year-old, I'm probably interested in it. And then there's some situations yes. where Jeff can be completely excited about it and I'm ready to fall asleep, you know? Yeah. I don't think you have the same excitement about banking that I do. I certainly don't think you'd have the same exciting about insurance. No, I'm not um, sure. Whereas no. as opposed to things like entertainment and stuff. Yeah. yeah and I like, yeah, and I've talked about this a lot. I'm very attracted to the businesses where I can be the customer and I can right. understand why customers, you know, yeah. use it, right? Whether it's like a nostalgic thing where I've had a, um, you know, experience with it. Mm-hmm. But banking, for example, I've definitely, um, I think I've become more attracted to it because, wink, wink, maybe we own a bank. Mm-hmm. But what allowed me to do that was doing the scuttlebutt. Right. I think scuttlebutt is so important for investors. And, you know, even Buffett's talked about, he's like, I don't do a lot of it now, but so much of the knowledge is cumulative where he doesn't have to do the legwork now. But for me, that's just a, a huge I guess, learning advantage is, is going on scuttlebutt with you and listening, you know, and talking to management and, um, you know, doing all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely the area in which it's been most... Uh forming an investment philosophy or whatever, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with some states extending or going back to lockdown, what do you guys think of REIT stocks like WPG and RWT? Thanks. Um, 
I don't know. I think I've gotten some criticism from comments on Reed Stocks before. <laughs> uh, but a lot of people like Reeds a lot. Um, we could put that in and say it, it's hard to evaluate a Reed just on the um, Washington Prime Group Inc. Okay, we'll need a business description. Though. That's the problem. Recognized leader. They're always the recognized leader, the yeah. leader, the well, recognized number. leader means nothing generally. <laughs> if you see how I highlight things in a 10K and stuff, they say among the top, yeah. whatever, I just circle among and say not the leader. <laughs> it's just, it's, yeah, I know, right? It's just so funny to me. Sometimes the way companies describe themselves, they're like, we're the global blah, blah, blah. And I'm right. like, you're like a $20 million company. <laughs> like, you know, um, let's see. Retail okay. properties, the company combines a natural real estate portfolio with its expertise across the entire shopping center sector to increase cash flow through rigorous so, management of assets. Yeah. Okay, one problem here is I, I don't know about you, I actually haven't been to a mall since uh, COVID. I haven't been to a mall in like years. Uh, no, it's probably been like a year, I'd okay. say. Yeah. So I haven't been to an indoor mall. Um, so it's hard for me to evaluate those things. I have been to uh, some outdoor malls and stuff around here and things, but uh, it is difficult to evaluate and it's difficult based on where you are in the country. I talked to some people in other parts of the country and they have a whole, totally different experience of it than here. Um, so, I mean, doing some scalable and stuff would help. Uh, I, I don't know the details on these particular companies, so it's going to be the problem. So, um, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, what's your opinion on China being removed from the global supply chain? I don't have any reason to believe that that will happen and stuff, really. Roughly how many 10Ks do you read a year? <sighs> That's very hard to answer. Um, more than 100, less than 500. What do you think is the uh, top? Filings of some kind from them. Like, but, I mean, per company. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. So an SEC filing of the company, yeah. Sometimes it's S1s and stuff like that. What do you think the toughest part of investing is? What is the most difficult aspect to be good at? Uh, the toughest part of investing is that your results for a long period of time and how good your decision making were uh, don't really give you a response to it. So you can go for a while of um, having made good decisions and not get good results and vice versa. Uh, an account I managed uh, in the past 10 years or so think our best year ever was a year in which I didn't make any changes. <laughs> yeah. So, and then people think, oh, you had a really good year or whatever. Well, yeah. I had a good year two years before when I picked the stocks yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they happened to all come due and, you know, three years later. So the delayed gratification yeah, yeah, yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. When investing in overlooked stocks, as you do with concentrated positions, you want A, illiquidity, B, price discipline, three, lots of capital. But in practice, you can only have two. Which do you choose? Um... So it depends on the stock and stuff, but um, in general, we're just trying to get the get an acceptably good average price over time for us. Um, so, got it. Yeah. And then he says a related question: We are trying to invest large sums in small liquid stocks and buy all at once. How do you manage price discipline? How much do you give to get your bid hit in something like PRKA? And how does that change as your percentage ownership increases? Um, so honestly, it, it, we don't bid much in situations where I think it's unlikely that we'll get much in the way of stocks. So it, I think people assume that we're out there bidding every day in some stocks when that's not true. Um, we look for major blocks of stock and when we can't find them, we don't necessarily buy that stock. Sometimes I pass on a stock because I don't think we can get it. Um, in some cases, I've we've gotten some stocks because I've suggested it um, uh, where, like, I thought there'd be more volume mm -hmm. and stuff. I mean, I guess we can go into that. I mean, there's one stock that we sold out of 
um, basically the day before earnings or something. And I'm yeah. sure people thought it was because I was like, oh, what will earnings be? It wasn't. It was because I thought there'd be a lot of volume. Yeah. We were so, able to yeah, get out of it. Yeah. So one it's day. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, should someone who engineers a takeover of a firm does a recap through a pipe structure and then incinerates half of the assets and equity inside of 24 months, be managing money professionally? Or are sermons about Warren Buffett enough to overcome the results? What does that mean? Uh, I don't know the details of that. Uh, so yep, me neither. I don't ever want to talk about specific <laughs> things. So. Um, most of the time, the business is more important than the, than the manager. What are examples where the manager is so excellent you can invest in a subpart business? Does David Sokol hit that high bar? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I know a little bit about him and what he's doing and stuff. Well, what about situations? Uh, I was just reading in the Wall Street. ethical thing with him that to keep in mind, but yeah. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about, uh, is it Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg? Yes. They're starting their own streaming service. They raised like $1.5 billion, yep. a ton of money, and they're having incredibly hard time with the business. I think they're, they wanted uh, 7 million subscribers and they only have 2 million. Yeah, I wouldn't invest in that with him. Uh, Katzenberg, I think, is excellent. And I've said before that uh, one of the reasons why I hesitated on buying DreamWorks and didn't buy it, you know, um, was what would I do if he wasn't there? Um, honestly, uh, it depends on the business in terms of the manager, the industry and stuff. It really does. So if Katzenberg was starting up another studio and stuff, I don't know, maybe that's a different story. But um, uh, I have said before, like, there are bankers, for instance, where I would totally, like I've said, I won't do an IPO and stuff. Mm -hmm. I would totally buy into an IPO. If they said I'm going to start up a bank from scratch, once they had had a career in banking that I can watch and stuff. So banking and insurance, I think definitely, but definitely banking. Um, if someone who I thought was just the best banker around or one of five on a list or whatever mm -hmm. said, I'm going to start one up, do you want to put in that book value when we launch or whatever? Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah. But outside of things like banking and stuff, most industries, no. Which private company do you wish was public so you can invest in it if the price is right? It's a good question. I mentioned Bucky's before. I think Bucky's would be interesting. Let's Talk about a brand in like the gas station industry, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and yeah, so I'd be, I'm very curious about their financials and stuff. Anyone who wants to send me <laughs> any information yeah. about that mm -hmm. company or knows anything about it, I'd be interested. It, they're giant convenience stores in uh, Texas mm -hmm. for people who don't know. Giant. Like picture yeah. the biggest one you've ever walked through and multiply it by two yeah there's like a jerky station which is bigger than um uh some offices i've seen mm -hmm. how do you scuttlebutt if the company you're looking at is located outside the country uh so you do the buffett trick which is you employ helpers mm -hmm. so uh, sometimes you have to tell people basically you have to try to find people that you know that could visit and do things like that and um try to get them interested in the stock basically mm. you try to you know if you can get other people interested in the stock they'll tell you information about it and they'll go out and they'll do the scuttlebutt if it's a really good idea you can usually get your network of people in different countries to do that now of course many people may not have no people in other countries and stuff mm -hmm. but i've done scuttlebutt i mean i've, I've had i've had been able to put a, a report together based on scuttlebutt in countries like the uk and various places and stuff that i was not in at the time that it happened and um Pretty similar to the U.S. through the internet, basically. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, we're already over 25 minutes, um, but okay. we could answer a couple more. Um, thoughts on P-A-Y-S, pay sign, and I-E-H-C, I-E-H Corporation. Oh, well, I wrote up I-E-H, uh, wait, did I write up I-E-H-C? Yeah, you did. You wrote up that company. Yeah, is that the, I'm just making sure that's the same ticket. It right? is. So we're talking about the company in New York that does yes. the electronic. Okay. Yeah. So um, yeah. 
So I did write up that company and I don't have a lot of thoughts about it. I like the business and stuff a lot. Um, there was some other stuff with the company I wasn't as sure about. Um, and you know, your private thoughts are different. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, they're, behind a, they're behind a paywall. And stuff. Yeah. I, the business is very interesting. I look at their inventory over the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, next question, which I skipped over. Would you ever invest in an IPO if the price was right? I don't know if I would. Uh, I've never found a situation where it was, uh, and I don't think I've ever come close. But I, I think I mentioned on this podcast before a, a long time ago. I did uh, actually I did read about it and stuff Open Table and stuff, but didn't buy mm-hmm. it. I do sometimes um, read the IPO documents when a stock comes out. I'm just going to pick some other ones. Okay. Um, we hit on this. He asked about recently bankrupt oil companies worth picking up when they merge on the other side. Yes, that could be true. Emerging from bankruptcy and being in bankruptcy are two totally different things. And I don't want to discourage anyone from buying into things after when they're emerging from bankruptcy. Um, that can be a, that's totally different. And you know, you can read, you can be a stock market genius and stuff. I, I was just in the podcast that we recorded recently talking about, um, things where the company just announces it's headed into bankruptcy and people buy the stock, which mm-hmm. is totally different than emerging from bankruptcy, which is often a great idea. How did Jeff manage to escape the nine to five slavery? It's a good question. Uh, I, I did work um, from nine to five. Okay. Earlier than nine and later than five. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, I think you work more than nine to five. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no, I mean, I did do that uh, when I first came to Plano. Yeah, so no, I did I'm talking about it now. Yeah. yeah, I did work for another company for a while. But um, other than that, yeah, I mean, honestly, internet presence very, very early on. Mm-hmm. I mean, even blogs hadn't been around for that long when I started blogging and, and things like that. So uh, some people, whatever. I mean, I didn't go looking out for offers for jobs and opportunities to do things and stuff. Andrew found me to do focus combat things. The job that I referred to, that was the nine to five one that I came out of plan for. I didn't ask for that job. I, someone came to me and stuff. So it was from having a presence on the internet. How do you think about operating versus capital leases or have you already talked about this? Uh, we have talked about it before. There's also some accounting changes and stuff now that, that um, make that a little different, but uh, you can do it either way. I, I like to talk. I like to think in terms of fixed charge coverage mm-hmm. more so than like enterprise value, where you add the leases onto it. But I understand why people do that. Um, I just think that it, it's more how many times do you cover your fixed charges and stuff. So I think of basically when we're thinking about things like rent versus thinking about things like um, to add it to the enterprise value. But if you look historically and stuff, analysts add capitalize it and add it. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that's a little different than de- I just feel like it's a little different than debt. But I feel that way about other things too. You'll notice like if a company has <laughs> if a company has three times debt to EBITDA or something in short term debt that's could be, you know, that has to be refinanced this year or something, I feel differently about that than if they have it spread out over a long period of time. And the same thing. I think that as long as you can cover rent and stuff like that well, um, leases can actually be really attractive. Um, Got it. Uh, we'll end on this question since we're over 30 minutes. He says, I think I've discovered some of the fable Japanese net nuts that Jeff was talking about. Any tips slash things to look out for when looking in Japan? Uh, no, the only things that I did, I mean, unless you, there are websites, a uh, wonderful website that Clay um, runs and stuff is great for that. Um, that's Kenkyo, K-E-N-K-Y-O, investing. That's yeah. the best way to say it. Um, 
And that's a great site and it does cover net net sometimes. Uh, but unless you have someone like that who has some knowledge of Japan and some especially some knowledge of Japanese, um, then I would just say pick businesses that are pretty simple in industries that are pretty simple um, that you know well enough in the US. That's mm-hmm. what I did. And then just buy them based on the Ben Graham approach. Really, if Ben would Ben Graham buy it, yes, then do it. Um, but if if it's, you know, in weird industries and stuff, then I wouldn't necessarily do it. But I would it's a great place to buy the kinds of things Ben Graham really would. Uh, if you don't know it, a great thing to use is the Graham number. So the Graham number is the PE times PB. So if you get a really low number, we're talking like less than five or something, that's often really good. So let's say PE of 10 and price to book of uh, 0.4. If you get both of those things together, you have a Graham number of four. And that's low and that's really attractive. So if you've never used it before, maybe use the Graham number, look it up. Um, I mean, it's simple to do. It's just P times the price to book. His suggestion always was never to have it be higher than 22.5 for any stock, which if that was applied today would be hard on most popular stocks because 15 to 1.5 is 22.5. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you everybody so much for tuning in. Hit those subscribe buttons. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care.